ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Yes, the week ended one big open question that's been dominating headlines. Who will be the next Reserve Bank Governor? As we know, it's to be Michelle Bullock, who will move from the deputy position to its head in September. There are other related questions about how different this new regime and reorganised bank will feel to us as Australian citizens, because the plan is there will be some differences making fuller explanations to the community in particular of the bank's decision-making. That was part of the big committee of review of the bank, which reported earlier this year, recommending this changed tone, you could say, to explain more to the public. At least that's what it sounded like, though nothing was completely spelled out on this score. So we've invited two guests to Saturday Extra to reflect on what differences might flow from this new governor, the first woman to head the organisation. Dr Jonathan Kearns left the bank in March to become chief economist at the Challenger Investment Company and he knows well the bank's personnel and practices. Also, Dr Richard Dennis is with us. He's an economist and well-known as the executive head of the think tank, the Australia Institute. He's been strongly arguing that in trying to tame inflation the banks underestimated the impact of company profits and preferred instead to worry about impending wage breakouts. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. I'd I'd like to hear both of your verdicts right at the outset on the choice of Michelle Bullock. Um, Is she a hawk or a dove or how would you describe her? First to you, Jonathan. Uh, I'm not sure that we can describe Michelle as either a hawk or a dove. I think she's exceptionally pragmatic. She's someone who is very studious in uh, absorbing all the information and she's someone who asks really pertinent questions. She's very sharp at being able to ask what is the most pressing issue and get to the nuts and bolts of things. So I think she's going to be a really good governor. And what's your view, Richard? Richard? Oh, look, it's it's way too early to tell. I think that the Reserve Bank itself has been uh, very proudly a very insular organisation that that really has uh, uh, proudly resisted criticism and, and ideas from outside. Uh, so how she'll behave now that she's leading it, well, I, I've frankly no idea, but she's certainly been there while the Reserve Bank has, I think, made some quite significant errors. What her role was in that, I've no idea idea, but it's great, I think, that we've changed the Reserve Bank Governor, but what we really need to do is is change the, the, the behaviour of the Reserve Bank, and fingers crossed she's up for that. Okay, we're going to come to that. I mean, Jonathan, have you personally worked with her at the bank? I did. I had the good fortune of working very closely with Michelle for five years, um, and, and I was really impressed with the way that she works. Um, she's very good at giving people space and latitude for challenging ideas. She's a great leader, and I think she's actually also a very good communicator. We've seen that in just the uh, you know, 15 months that she's been deputy governor. Uh, she's appeared in a range of forums from appearing with academics to in front of the parliamentary committees, and she's very good at communicating, I think, and so that will help where next year the Reserve Bank is going to be giving press conferences after each meeting to explain exactly why they're changing policy. So I think she'll be great for that. Yes, that's what I want to focus on. Just, to, just that 
insularity, though, that I think mm. um, uh, Richard mentioned. Now, mo- moving an organisation out of insularity, even if, if that is even fair, that's, that is not uh, necessarily an easy thing. You think that she's the right type of personality to do that, do you? Look, I think Michelle was the best candidate available for the job. Um, to be honest, if we look at other countries, then quite frequently the central bank governor has come from outside of the central bank, you know, most recently New Zealand, Canada. But in those countries, you've had candidates who've had experience working in a central bank and then working outside the central bank. And so they get a range of perspectives. In a, you know, it is very challenging to, to run a central bank. We all think about monetary policy as what the Reserve Bank does, but it's much broader than that. It's responsible for the payment system. So, you know, when you go to a, um, buy something from a shop, when you transfer money to somebody and it's going between banks, all of that back end is happening because of the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank is also the bank for the government, for the Australian government. It's responsible for producing banknotes. So it's a very broad institution. There are more IT staff than there are economists. So Michelle has the experience across all aspects of the bank, which puts her in a good place for for running that organisation and and doing a good job in that. It's challenging for someone who hasn't had that breadth of experience to be able to come in and lead an organisation of 1,300 people that has such a broad range of responsibilities. So... You know, yes, I think you could often make the case for an external governor, but the fact is it's hard to find someone with those qualities Sweet in Australia. Mm. Look, I'm especially interested today in how we, in the stalls as it were, will see it all. How do you imagine, Richard, this idea of more front-facing conduct, it's, it's a bit sort of, you know, uh, jargony, but that's what I think they're asking for, will unfold? Uh, look, to be honest, um, I think that uh, we're, we're putting a lot of emphasis on communication when really the main thing is what are the decisions they make and how do they make them. And uh, yes, it's good that they're going to, uh, you know, have have more press conferences. Great. But, you know, really, I don't think most Australians lose sleep over why their interest rates went up. Uh, I think they, a lot of, I think millions of Australians uh, are worried about that they went up. So uh, to be clear, I think some more transparency is a good idea. Uh, I think uh, that that, um, uh, that, that press conferences and, and the board themselves, not just the governor, owning some of these decisions publicly is a good idea. But let's not get too excited about what the media will get excited about, which is the press conference. What matters is the decision they make. And just quickly on the insularity, that may well be right that the only person that could run it uh, is Michelle Bullock. And to be clear, I have no problem with her. She's yet to make a single decision I disagree with. But most organisations most organizations take succession planning pretty seriously. And the idea that decade after decade, there's no one else who can do it, suggests uh, a problem in and of itself. Why aren't they bringing people in at the mid-level from outside? Why is it that people have had to work there their whole life to get to the top? That that speaks to the insularity that I think is a problem, which, but again, that doesn't mean Michelle Bullock will do a poor job, mm. but I, I think that's not a good enough reason. I mean, Karen Maley in the Financial Review made a lot of sense yesterday, I thought, when she said that Arguably, Philip Lowe was 
as plain as he's ever been when he made his big announcement about interest rates likely to remain low for up to three years. And there was no economist speak there, you know. So people went out and borrowed to their eyeballs, including me. Now he's being slammed for that type of clear speaking in a sense, that you know, whereas maybe in other parts of the world like the US, they're more abstract, you know, rates will historically be repriced at the lower end sort of thing. And because he did speak clearly, um, which I presume is what is being required, um, people heard it. Now, I mean, so it's a bit sort of um, paradoxical, I think, in a way, Jonathan. Yeah, I think that that's a, a fair point. Uh, the decision made to um, implement a very low interest rate policy and, and make that commitment for keeping rates low for three years. When, if you go back and read what Phil Lowe actually said at the time, they were, always were conditional statements. He said, you know, we expect this to be three years, etc. Um, but then, you know, in the media reporting of that, it always became an unconditional statement. And the Reserve Bank never actually corrected that. They didn't go out of their way. They were willing to they let did that not, misperception no. <laughs> continue because it suited their purpose. It helped to provide the stimulus that at the time was felt needed for the economy given the dire situation we were in. Well, in it released animal spirits, I think, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, to be fair, that stimulus helped to get us to the point where the unemployment rate was 3.5%. You know, without that degree of stimulus, we wouldn't have had such a low unemployment rate. So, you know, that is a positive for lots of Australian people. I mean, it is a lovely story about Alan Greenspan, the former Federal Reserve Chairman, Richard, who was notoriously opaque in his statements. And this is a great quote. If I have made myself too clear, he said in answer to somebody, you must have misunderstood me. (laughs) 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 He was completely sort of circumlocutory, you know. Um, We don't want that, do we? No, we don't. And, and indeed, I wrote a book on uh, called Econobabble on exactly that approach to language. Uh, and I don't think that's a good idea at all. But uh, and, and again, Philip Lowe, I agree, spoke very clearly when he when he made some of uh, uh, when I when I think he, he communicated some of his worst ideas. Not just uh, not just that interest rates wouldn't go up. Um, until 2024, he, he said that they wouldn't increase rates until real wages started to grow strongly. Uh, and then when he when uh, when real wages fell, fell faster than they'd ever fallen, he went on to increase interest rates faster than they'd ever been increased before. So, uh, no, at times he's communicated very clearly, uh, but what he said has not turned out to be the case. Well, and, mm. and again, I don't think it's a – I don't think the main challenge is a communication one. It's a structural one. It's the way they see the world. It's the decisions they make. Yeah, well, that brings us into this whole debate about what does drive inflation and whether our reserve over worries about wages breakouts and accordingly does not name business profits sufficiently. Now, Richard, you've particularly made this case. Make it again for us this morning, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, there's just no doubt that profits have played a significant role in driving Australia's inflation in recent times. And when the Australia Institute said this, it was heresy a year ago, even though people like Nobel Prize winning economist Joe Stieglitz agreed. uh, And the Reserve Bank 
were entirely dismissive uh, of these claims. Indeed, freedom of information uh, requests have sort of shown that the Reserve Bank uh, not just criticised our work but completely dismissed it. Um, but embarrassingly for the Reserve Bank, the OECD, the IMF and the US Fed Reserve uh, have all come out and said similar things. And to be clear, the OECD uh, and the IMF have said it about Australia. So, look, the, the determination of Philip Lowe to say profits weren't a significant part of what's happening in Australia was just bizarre, to be honest. Uh, and his determination to jawbone workers and say, you better not ask for more wages or you'll be causing inflation, uh, when he was absolutely silent about the fact that, you know, Qantas was lifting air, uh, airfares far faster than the cost of travel. Uh, it's, you know, especially when things like uh, airfares were very significant contributors to inflation earlier this year. So, yeah. So- you would like him to have named that when, when he gave his st- statements that he did give. You'd like to have had an overt naming of, you know, uh, energy companies raising prices and uh, coffee shops raising prices. That's what you wanted and you didn't hear it. Well, absolutely, for two reasons. One, it was happening. It was true. And to be strategically silent about it wasn't economics. Uh, so why not state the obvious? But secondly, by, by keep reminding everybody if wages get out of control, it could cause inflation in the future. Well, that's a statement of the obvious. But wages haven't been out of control in Australia for a decade. In fact, we've had really low wage growth in Australia for a decade, and we've got real wages going backwards at the moment. So I think the things that the, that Philip Lowe chose to focus on uh, were, uh, well, A, uh, they, they were out of step with economic reality and B, they were highly political. Uh, and C, we know that Philip Lowe's uh, RBA uh, through FOI was doing work to examine the quality and conclusions of our work, work that was subsequently confirmed by the OECD. Yeah, but not Treasury, but, for instance. Treasury didn't find your work. They sort of said that if you looked at uh, take out the mining sector and actually profit r- uh, levels hadn't risen dramatically. But again, that's, that's not what the OECD said when the OECD looked at the same thing. So let, let's be clear, the mining industry has seen enormous profits in Australia and, and to be clear, our research said this too. There was nothing in the RBA or Treasury criticisms of our work that we hadn't said ourselves. Uh, but to, to exclude all of the profits uh, of the energy industry when energy is a key driver of inflation in Australia is just bizarre. Now, and again, it's not a mistake the, uh, the OECD made. But just let me quickly say what we also know from FOI is that the RBA has not done any analysis, none, of the inflationary impact of $20 billion a year in stage three tax cuts next year. So why is the RBA doing internal research to, you know, to dismiss our work, again, work that the OECD confirmed, when it hasn't done any work on whether $20 billion worth of tax cuts, which will give $9,000 a year to people earning over $200,000 a year, why isn't the RBA saying, gee, is that going to add to inflation? Is that going to make it harder to get back to 3% inflation? How could they do no work? None on the inflationary impact right. of enormous tax cuts and, and, and spend this amount of time talking about potential wage breakouts. Okay, that is something that 
will undoubtedly be discussed at these open press conferences. Jonathan Kearns, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And Richard Dennis uh, from the Australia Institute and welcome your thoughts. Uh, I think it will make for a very interesting <laughs> next year in terms of the Reserve Bank and us. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.